Welcome to the UNSW Canberra podcast series, Navigating Uncertainty. Today's podcast addresses the topic of women, rivers and power in the Mekong region. In such tumultuous and unpredictable times, we believe that careful work in the humanities and social sciences can shed light on many of our current challenges and help us to chart ways forward. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Environment and Governance and Asia-Pacific Development and Security Research Groups based at UNSW in Canberra. This podcast has been recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the Canberra region. We acknowledge their elders past and present and that sovereignty has never been ceded. I'm Anthony Burke and it's my pleasure to host today's conversation. Our guest today is Dr. Pishamon Yofentong, who's a Senior Lecturer in International Political Studies and an ARC DECRA Fellow at UNSW Canberra. Rivers are amongst the world's most ecologically and economically important ecosystems, and the Mekong is one of the world's great rivers. In this podcast, we discuss the impact social and environmental change is having on women living in the Mekong, the ways they can contribute to river governance and leadership, and their keen appreciation of the links between society and ecology. Pishamon, welcome to the Navigating Uncertainty podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Tony. You're one of the authors of a new report, or perhaps not so new, but an important report on by the Women and Rivers Network on women and rivers in the Mekong region. Before we get into some of that, that work, which I'd like to talk to you about, can you tell us why water is important? Why should we be more concerned about water politics and what is happening with water? Yes, absolutely. So why do water and hydropolitics matter, you ask? Water is often described as blue gold because it is a vital yet increasingly scarce and finite resource. Human societies wouldn't be able to thrive without access to clean and safe freshwater resources. Water basically is what sustains ecosystems, industries, agriculture, and of course, human livelihoods. It's for this reason that clean water and sanitation um, feature as goal six of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. If reliable availability and accessibility of water weren't sorry, if water weren't readily available and accessible, human development uh, would be severely impeded and tendencies to conflict also exacerbated. And this is what we've been witnessing in regions like um, that are drying up, like the Lake Chad region in West Africa. Um, and just a little bit about Lake Chad, because I think it'll be quite interesting in the sense that it teases out the connection between water and security as well. I mean, since the 1960s, Lake Chad has been drying up um, and it's a source of water for tens of millions of people. Um, and as a result of the water scarcity that we see now in the region, um, the result has been a rise in poverty, a rise in human vulnerability, but also a rise in violent extremism. And I think this is a perfect example of why understanding the linkages between water and insecurity um, is so important. Um, Great. All right, well, let's move on to this new report. What was the Women and Rivers report trying to achieve and what did you find and what was your experience of doing the research? So the report was inspired by the outcomes of the inaugural Women and Rivers Congress held back in, in 2019. 
Spearheaded by the NGO International Rivers, the event had brought together nearly 100 women from over 30 countries to discuss, share and acknowledge the critical roles that women play when it comes to defending and stewarding rivers, as well as other freshwater resources around the world. Um, so the report as a result was really about capturing and understanding the roles that women play, how women exercise leadership when it comes to water governance in Southeast Asia, but also how women can be better supported in order to assume those leadership roles. Um, and of course, when it comes to our, uh, when it came to our key findings, um, there are plenty of challenges uh, that women face in order to become leaders um, in the water governance space in Southeast Asia. This is largely to do with um, um, socio-cultural norms that still privilege the patriarchy, um, but it also has a lot to do with the fact that women have to face a lot of burden when it comes to managing their households and balancing that with their more professional duties, for example. Um, so really, the central message that we sought to convey in the report is one that probably is, going, is not going to be too surprising for those who are already working in the space. But it's really simply that women's leadership matters a great deal um, to good environmental governance and in particular water governance. Um, women, women's leadership matters a lot to managing rivers well. Um, and as one interview we had put it, the Macron region, in the Macron region in particular, water is women's daily business. Um, so during the research, to, to go back to your question about what the experience was like, um, during the research was really, to put it simply, a whole lot of fun. Um, although we had to run up against really tight deadlines, um, I had the opportunity to conduct uh, in-depth in-person interviews uh, with a group of key stakeholders across the region. And this was actually the last fieldwork trip I was able to, to do um, before COVID-19 broke out. Um, and I really learned a lot from these stakeholders in the process. Um, I mean, many of them were women, many of them were activists, um, but also policymakers. And it was inspiring to see this group of women trying to do new things um, to push through innovative new ideas vis-a-vis um, -vis water governance in the region. Um, it was also, of course, a great pleasure to work with colleagues at International Rivers and Oxfam, um, and also with my co-author, Karen Delfau, um, and I think I speak for the both of us, my, my co-author and I, when I say that working on this report has really helped to change our perspectives um, on what women's leadership means um, and how it can operate in, in differing ways within the region. And had, had they had experience of researchers or even government officials being interested in, in their lives and their leadership before? Or I think that's... this encounter with you something new? Uh, I, I don't believe it was something new per se, but I think the report is new in the, in the way that it kind of tries to systematically um, capture how women's leadership has evolved um, within the region, but also how women themselves view their roles. Um, I think what came through very clearly from the interviews and in the report as well is that Women themselves, whether they be activists, policymakers, or you know leaders of of um, big energy companies or hydropower companies, they have their own ideas about what leadership means to them. And I think it's really important to understand that leadership isn't kind of like a, a there's no universal understanding, um, and that we have to really appreciate how the different roles that they play all at the end of the day, contribute somehow to, to water governance. Um, and so what did come through, however, was that 
within the region, and this is not terribly surprising. Um, there's still a lack of representation of women in in high visibility roles. Um, so you don't, you still don't have a lot of women in. Um, in kind of more senior policy-making roles within governments in Southeast Asia, especially in the water space, which remains very much dominated by by men, um, especially those with the scientific engineering knowledge. Um, and this is clearly a gap and one of the obstacles that we document in the report and one that we argue needs to be um, adapted to better suit the rea realities of today. And to also recognize that, again, women are the key stewards um, we would argue, when it comes to water governance. Um, especially in communities, women are the ones that often have the best insight into hydrological flows um, and into understanding how resources from the river are being used and how they can be better managed by the community as well. So it's not enough for us to look at water governance from the kind of traditional scientific lens, but we actually also need to impose a more gender-sensitive um, perspective and one that's more attuned to um, local traditional knowledge. So that seems to suggest that there's a broader perhaps um, insight we can get from this report for environmental governance more broadly when there's a suggestion here that women and gender are, are, are a missing piece there. So over and above the comments you just made, what, what would it mean to do that better? That's a really great question. And I think that's where we're all still struggling. Um, we've certainly come a long way when it comes to acknowledging um, the role of women and the role that they play in environmental governance. Um, but really, the challenge I find often is that what sounds good on paper when it comes to you know governance arrangements, talking about women and being more um, uh, featuring more gender equity, for instance, is that what looks good what looks good on paper doesn't always translate into actual policy implementation um, and certainly one of the common complaints that we heard from stakeholders over the course of the research done for this report was that you know you have big organizations doing a lot of gender mainstreaming work or saying that gender is being incorporated systematically into their programming but the reality is that oftentimes those kind of those initiatives kind they end up becoming more like a bean counting exercise where okay. it's about the number of women um, that take part in a in a meeting, for example, as opposed to the quality of their participation. Um, so this, I think, is where, yes, gender and women are acknowledged missing pieces in environmental governance um, and in water governance in particular. Um, and the real challenge remains one of implementation and one where gender mainstreaming doesn't just mean having women in the room. It actually means having women actively participate, but also being actively listened to as well. So when you were working on this report, what actual key roles did you find women playing in the governance and the politics of development in the, the Mekong region? And what can we learn from that? I think this is where I... I I felt like um, it was really fascinating for me personally, um, as well as academically, um, because again, I think we, when we think about women's leadership, we tend to think of it of you know have it needing to be a woman in a, a high-level policy-making role. But in actual fact, um, speaking with stakeholders, but also reading through a lot of literature on the subject, it became quite apparent that you know, the key roles that women play and the 
perhaps some of the most important roles that women play are very much part and parcel of their everyday life. Um, and so in that regard, it's you know, women don't just manage the household, they also manage their communities. Um, it's, it's an extension of their household almost. Um, and so to me, that was a realization that I think we all know, but we don't always celebrate. Um, another kind of interesting role that came out as well from the interviews and in the report was how women were genuinely playing the role of defenders, um, environmental human rights defenders, that is. Um, and it was fascinating and admittedly inspiring um, to hear women defenders talking about how they would be protesting, you know, large scale hydropower dams um, in a country in Southeast Asia and how they would be at the forefront of such protests, um, but also how they would willingly take the lead um, like literally be on the at, at the front line um, in order to shield the men um, when they're protesting on the streets because it, when it comes to clashes with local authorities, men are more likely to get hurt, um, whereas local authorities are more likely to kind of be a bit less um, less violent when it comes to women. So they actually took that leading position in order to help shield their shield the men within their communities. And to me, I think that says a lot about the agency that women are able to exercise, um, but also the fact that, you know, far from being just, you know, the quiet um, woman in, in the room, women are actually trying to get their voices heard um, and they are literally fighting for their rights. That's absolutely fascinating. Maybe I can pick that up a little more because we know through organisations like Global Witness that there are hundreds of people being murdered every year for their environmental activism and defence of ecosystems and communities. Is this an area that is where being an environmental defender is particularly risky? Absolutely. I mean, being an environmental human rights defender is perhaps one of the riskiest jobs you can have. Um, and my another group of colleagues and... Um, and I have actually been working on this as well. Um, so we've been developing a report that's been commissioned by the United Nations Environment Program and um, to, to look at uh, the impacts of COVID-19 on environmental human rights defenders in Southeast Asia. But what we found, I mean, aside from the uh, very clear impacts of COVID-19 on their ability to, to mobilize and um, fight for their rights, uh, we also saw that women all, were key environmental human rights defenders um, and that women were in one sense almost disproportionately affected um, by the, the, the what's the word the um, crackdowns by by state governments and and all that so it's definitely a very risky job to have um, but it's also really fascinating fascinating that a lot of women have taken up this role um, mm -hmm. despite the risks involved. Yeah, that's an extraordinary exercise of leadership. And overall, this seems like a space in which questions of gender and social justice and ecology intersect very strongly. Does that have implications for scholarship, for knowledge, for the ideas that we bring to policy ma making all social science? 
Uh, yes, most definitely. And I think the, the, your question operates at different levels as well, um, at different levels of knowledge. Um, at one level, I think what has come through in the report, um, but also in other re ongoing research projects that I'm involved in that relates to this report is the fact that knowledge isn't the same for everyone and that knowledge is indeed power, right? Um, the ability to to craft knowledge, to create it, is something that we often see women being not being able to participate too actively in, especially local women. Um, and this is where, and this is why actually, uh, my colleague and I, um, Karen, um, we've decided to embark on another research journey uh, where we're trying to better understand how women can be um, incorporated into processes of knowledge co-creation in order, especially in the water governance space, so that they can be able to raise their voices, be listened, to, um, but also contribute to um, establishing what the body of knowledge, what the body of credible, trustworthy knowledge looks like when it comes to uh, water management and environmental governance more broadly. So it's definitely something um, worth considering, I think, especially uh, in development programming, where a lot of the time knowledge seems to be held by the development elites um, within a country or within a donor organization. Um, and I suppose this is addressing your question in a slightly different way, perhaps. Um, but it's incredibly important that knowledge is something that's held by everyone and is produced by everyone and is not just an asset of the few. Yeah, so knowledge has got to be democratic. Exactly. Coming from the bottom up. That's a, a great insight. So where can readers find this uh, Women and Rivers report? Well, you can find our report published on the Women and Rivers Network's dedicated website, as well as on International Rivers' website. Um, we also have executive summaries of the report published in six languages, um, including in Mandarin Chinese. Um, so I'd really urge our listeners to have a look at the Women's and River, sorry, the Women and Rivers Network website, um, which is really womensandriversnetwork.com, um, as it contains some really interesting resources for those keen to explore this topic further. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you very much, Pishamon, for joining us for such a fascinating and I think important discussion. Uh, and thanks to our audience for your interest today. Please stay posted for forthcoming episodes of Navigating Uncertainty.